My name is Craig Pickett. I'm an executive recruiter. More than a decade ago, I started my practice for one purpose, to use my experience as a former military aviator, business jet sales executive, and P&L leader to help aviation and aerospace companies and their executives be fast, adaptable, and strategic. I do these podcasts to inspire and inform, but more importantly, they are a focused platform to help business leaders grow. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. Welcome back to the uh, Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to have Michael Bruno on with me. Michael is the uh, business editor for Aviation Week magazine. I love reading his editorials. Uh, he writes great stuff. We, we, we trade a lot of emails back and forth. We do. So uh, it's great to have you on. Thank you. No, it's a it's it's a real honor to be here. I mean, I love watching your podcasts. You get great guests. So thank you. Lots of interesting stuff happening in the uh, in the industry. So I guess we can. Where do you want to start? We got Evital. We got people. We got yeah. yeah tomorrow. Was, <laughs> what hasn't that, been dis- what hasn't been disrupted in the industry in the last twelve months? Oh my goodness! You know, I'm just sort of waiting for somebody to bring back uh, biplane. Uh, or uh, try to make something out of gliders or who, you know, you know, sky's the limit right now. Um, We are coming off of the most incredible, uh, hardest hitting reset that this industry uh, certainly has seen in living memory and probably since World War II. Uh, And so, you know, on the one hand, we're still recovering and there's a lot to be said for that. But on the other hand, uh, the, the recovery is here. You look around, we've got more uh, commercial air traffic passengers booking flights for their summer um, yeah. vacations. Um, MRO shops, the repair shops for these airliners are mm-hmm. starting to see increased activity. Uh, a lot of talent low going on around the industry. Um, you know, I, I would sort of say, let's start with the beginning, the, the commercial aircraft recovery, because that's kind of what got us into this mess, and yeah. that's that's ultimately what's going to determine when we finally ultimately recovered. Um, we come out of the pandemic, and we've still got a lot of parked airliners yeah. around the world, um, but interestingly, not so many of them have necessarily been retired just yet. Mm-hmm. And and the thing about those retirements is, you know. Everybody's watching to see whether there's a, an expected wave of the old aircraft getting retired. And uh, that's because new generation aircraft like the 737 Maxes and the A320 Neos are going to have far better fuel efficiency. So, you know, on the one hand, you think, okay, that'll be good for manufacturing. There's a sort of a natural um, inclination to buy the newer generation aircraft um, and get rid of the old ones. But at the same time, um, you know, the old ones, uh, they're already here. They're you can fly passengers. They're cheaper. Um, oil hasn't surged yet. We're kind of yeah. back to a sort of a $60 a barrel oil. Um, we've seen higher. And, and so, you know, we're at this weird state of the recovery where things could still kind of go either way. Although I think the optimism is there that, that the recovery is happening. Yeah, look, I see a lot of threats to yeah, the threats to the industry. We we're talking about before we hit record on this. It was the light switch got turned off when COVID hit. Everybody's worried about cash flow. You know, airlines laid off thousands of people. You know, the shareholders got to be doing an Irish jig because PPP money bailed them out. Oh yeah, um, you know, 
you know, a Delta shareholders just thank Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden for your, your stock being at, you know, where it's at now. But um, a lot of, a lot of pilots are gone. A lot of 60 year old to 65 year old pilots are just like, Hey, I'm wrapping it up. They're gone. They're never coming back. Yeah. A lot of technicians are gone. Technicians are gone. Flight crews are gone. Uh, Within the manufacturing side, you've got seasoned executives who know how to run a production line. People who saw the last major ramp up, the historic ramp up that we saw of the narrow bodies getting around 60 new ones a month getting produced. I, I think this talent issue is is uh, and that's one reason I talked to you, Craig. But you know, I think this talent issue is going to actually be one of the biggest bugaboos that haunts this industry going forward. And I think that because there is no substitute for experience and for uh, knowledge workers who are in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe there's a surplus of folks out there that you can go snag for a relatively cheaper amount of money than maybe you could a couple of years ago, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're still in the right place at the right time in the right industry, able to fully use their, their knowledge. So, you know, I wonder for this industry, we are now seeing this final historic retirement of the baby boomers um, mm-hmm. and people who are older than them who have decided for whatever reason, now is a good time to get out um, or they had to get out um, because it wasn't their choice. And I don't think we've even begun to see the effects of what that's going to mean as to how this industry run all of the industries, manufacturing, airlines, MRO shops, business aviation. I think the other shoes to, you know, to drop on that. Yeah, look, I think that it comes down. No, I agree. And, and, and where there's this, you know, where you see in economics, where you see massive periods of overabundance, you saw the housing, we saw it in housing back in the financial crisis where, you know, foreclosures galore created this overabundance price drop and then all of a sudden everybody gets out and now you're seeing a massive shortage you know you're going to see the same thing i think in talent in aerospace we did a horrible job um really bringing you know young people into the executive ranks or we were big we were stuffy we were lum- you know lumbering companies right without a lot of you know, without a lot of, you know, like you're competing against Apple, you're competing against Microsoft, Dell. Yeah, there's every that startup, big every, tub in the demographics. Every right? startup company in Boston, which is like, hey, we're, we're doing really cool things in the fintech world. You know, look, that's your competition. And if yep. you come along and we're some big stuffy aerospace company, we're an oligopoly. And, and it, it, you know, because, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily attract the, the demographics that are coming up behind us right now. It, it, it doesn't yet, but I do think there's, you know, a couple of um, silver linings on this, this cloud. And one of them is I think that the aerospace and defense world um, uh, is finally sort of getting on board with, uh, if you'll go with me for a moment, with the save the world mantra that so many other industries uh, like technology were mm-hmm. able to present, whether it was real or not, you know, we can have a whole other debate about that. But with the ESG movement, uh, and it's now finally hitting home with aerospace and defense. Mm-hmm. You're just genuinely hearing more of our companies in this industry talk about the effect of not only do we do great things with connecting the world or mm-hmm. providing sovereign you know, defense for countries, but also 
we're really actually working hard to try to reduce the carbon footprint. Um, right. We're going to put sensors and other things in outer space in a responsible way, by the way, the responsible way is key there, but we're going to put this enabling technology that's going to help us do a whole lot of other things that are really required for decarbonizing the right. world to get to a goal of, you know, neutrality by 2050. And uh, it's sort of disappointing on the one hand that it took us so long in this industry to get there, but it looks like it's here. You know, we can finally make the claim to the younger generations that you will not be hurting the world and you will be helping the world by joining one of these big aerospace defense companies or a startup. Well, I see like, uh, look, I think the biggest, everybody's talking about eVTOL right now. eVTOL is the, you know, Billions of dollars in investment are coming into Buzzword. You and I should go start a company and oh put my gosh. on it. I'm like the biggest skeptic. I've told people, I go, I'm going to create a SPAC called When Pigs Fly. And I'm just going to, I'm going to create, I'm going to build wings for pigs. I'm going to give them saddles and I'm going to go fly them. Because that's literally, I think, where, you know, where it's at. Um, I don't think urban mobility is really a thing. And I may be totally wrong. And quite frankly, I hope I am. But I'm just not there yet. Um, where I see it is not for people. I see it for cargo. I uh-huh. see it for urban. I see, you know, if you want to get trucks off roads, like New York City, if you want to, you know, decrease the amount of trucks going across the GW or through the, the Lincoln Tunnel, you know, there's there's this great technology that's coming out. But what I see is like fuel cell, you know, hydrogen fuel cells. And that's all of a sudden got me excited because I see these people going, hey, wait a minute, you know, we can start to do stuff, a little less jet engine, a little bit more hydrogen fuel. All right, it's probably twenty years off, but it's it's exciting. And anything a, anything inc- in aviation is twenty years anyway. So. Right, exactly. It takes us ten years to get warmed up in this industry, right. and uh, you know, we'll, by twenty years, we'll have kind of figured it out. And I I do think you're right there about hydrogen. You know, to think twenty years from now, um, hydrogen will be real as a sustainable fuel for long haul. Um, it may not be the complete solution. We may not, you know, entirely have airliners, wide bodies running on it, uh, but you're going to have enough of the large commercial aircraft that use hydrogen. And then in combination with other electric hybrid um, systems within the aircraft, where the aircraft is 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 very well neutral, carbon neutral, and, and that's genuinely going to happen. You can already see the timeline from the people that we cover at Aviation Week. They tell us you can already see the timeline and barring some kind of massive financial disruption that would be necessary to keep those investments happening, it's going to happen. Now that, you know, the funny thing about hydrogen is unlike any other, I think, fuel advance that's happened yet, um, that's going to allow for some major changes, perhaps finally, to the aircraft. I mean, the aircraft may look different from the way they look now. You may have more blended wing type of structures rather than the tube and the wings we have now. Um, And, you know, there's a lot to be said for that visual that changes. And when the aircrafts change because of the designs that are required from hydrogen, you may get a whole new level of excitement. Um, And then, you know, you stick the other things in there like supersonic travel, hypersonic travel, uh, maybe not hypersonic commercial travel, um, but supersonic for sure by then. Mm-hmm. Um, really exciting. I do want to say that, you know, following up on your eVTOL comment, I will have to admit that I'm mostly there with you in the skepticism column. Um, and it's simply from experience. You know, if 
if eVTOL was such a great solution in moving people around, wouldn't we be there already with helicopters? And we're not. Now, I know there's differences in noise and and uh, the the panache of an eVTOL may bring right. new people into the market. Um, but, you know, we've had this capability for a good long time. And we don't have heliports in everybody's backyard or on the roof of my house. Um, and And there's... Lots of good reasons. And one of the big ones I think about a whole lot lately is, you know, during the pandemic, everything went quiet. Uh, I live in Arlington, Virginia, and normally I get everything from the president flying over my house to the International Space Station to the Thunderbirds and aircraft taking off from DCA. And uh, it's just been really nice and quiet. And I think people will remember this time and then a potential future when you have eVTOLs flying all over the place kind of darkening the sky um, with their presence. And I'm not quite sure the public's going to let that happen as easily. That's, so that yeah. that's where my skepticism resides. Well, that's my thing is that nobody's defined what is urban mobility? Is urban mobility, does, does you know, Sally get in her little eVTOL and fly to Publix to go pick up you know dinner? Or is it going from Orange County to some place in... LA, nobody's really defined right. what it is. And you think about like, you know, we've got Robinson helicopters, you know, look up, you know, Robinson helicopters or, you know, it's, a, it's old technology. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, piston engine, relatively fuel efficient. They're very reliable. Proven technology. They're very reliable. You know, nobody's made any money flying them from Orange County to LA when they, right. when they very well could. Right. Um, New York, the, you know, the, the blades and the associated air groups and the heliflights in New York are, you know, it's 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 a pretty competitive, low margin business. It is. Um, and I think you're right in the sense that absolutely you can always guarantee that the the easier return on the money, the quicker marketplace like cargo is where you're going to see some of these yeah. things pick up. And it won't necessarily be my pizza getting delivered by eVTOL or UAV, it'll be the eVTOL maybe ferrying cargo between Los Angeles and some other uh, city with, you know, inside the continental US, uh, particularly if you're flying over the desert right. or something like that, when you got a route that's uh, low population, you can definitely see eVTOLs playing a role there, obviously with the military. Um, you know, the military is looking at eVTOLs from everything from uh, getting people between bases to uh, just checking out their ICBM fields, right. you know, out in the, the northern part of the United States. That makes sense. The mm-hmm. idea of getting from, as you said, Manhattan out to, um, you know, Martha's Bam- Vineyard or something like that, um, that could take a long, long time. Well, that's like, a, you know, the, you're already seeing pushback in the Hamptons, you know, helicopter traffic in the Hamptons. And... Yeah, the political environment's one that just people, you know, for whatever reason, you know, that that's going to be that's going to be a hurdle. Yeah. To, uh, yeah, to overcome, I agree. So. But I, I will tell you. I, so let's talk about one section, I think, of the aerospace and defense that's taking off right. literally that I am really excited about. And that is commercial space. Yes. You now, I, I think I'd love to hear because you've been. You've been here for a while in, in the industry, and you have, you've seen the space ventures of the 90s come and go. And uh, 
I didn't necessarily. I wasn't around as a reporter then. So, you know, to me, it's really exciting. I think we're really going to see it. But absolutely. You know, what do you think? I think absolutely. Well, look, you know, the day is coming. I remember I was talking to somebody. I said, I remember back in the early mid 90s when XM satellite was, you know, they're like, get ready to launch. And you thought that's the coolest thing. And I was a, I was an immediate subscriber to XM. But it cost them like you know several hundred million dollars to put their stuff up into space, which today Elon Musk can do for about about twenty. You know he's he's done an incredible job. SpaceX and Blue Origin, they've done such a great job of lowering the cost of putting satellites into orbit. Yeah, and now you see the low Earth orbit stuff, the the one skies, uh, you know the. You know, internet from space. Well, you think right. about internet from space to support the internet of things and 5G. I'm like, yeah, okay. Now the only, what's the challenge there is how many satellites can you put in low earth orbit and still, you know, who's going to monitor, you know, who's going to be the controlling party for that? But and that, and that is a huge, I think that is um, perhaps the biggest unsettled challenge uh, that commercial space is going to wind up seeing. And I'm not the smartest person in the room to figure that out. I heard that from Jim Bridenstine, you know, the former NASA administrator just recently. He was saying he thinks uh, orbital debris and 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 orbital mitigation is going to be the biggest challenge um, because very quickly with tens of thousands of satellites going up in low Earth orbit, you're going to have an, an air traffic control, a space traffic control problem um, with all the other debris out there and just and just clearing the orbital fields and making sure everybody's safe. And, you know, that that stuff will rear its ugly head and you'll it'll only take one or two more collisions before everybody looks up and says somebody's got to do something about it. And then the question is who? Right. And it, it, it can't just be Washington. It can't just be the United States government. There's going to need to be the equivalent of a new outer space treaty from the 1960s, the late 1960s. It was developed between the U.S. and the Soviet Union to try to make sort of a rules of the road. And uh, it was great. It worked for a while, but it's out of date. We're going to need a new one now. And you don't hear a lot of traction being made about how to make this work. And it's one of those, you know, tragedy of the commons. It's going to be like laws of the seas. It's almost yeah. like it's, it's, it's got to be maritime. It's like, you know, you, you read about maritime law and you're like, wow, where did all that come from? But it's like hundreds of years of conventions and things like that. And, and yep. you know, between, you know, between the U S and China, you know, you know, the political environment there. And then who else wants to launch, you know, their stuff, you know, Korea's launching stuff and Japan's launching stuff. And you're going, all right, yeah, let's, we, you know, we got to, it, it, it's in all of our collective best interests to, you know, at least find some sort of common ground as to how we're going to, you know, keep, I don't know, look, I'm not a space scientist. Do we keep, you know, is there some sort of corridor that's open? Is there some, right? you know, extension up the, say, hey, this is kind of launch area and everything else has to go. I don't know. I don't know how, I don't yeah. know how it works. Yeah. Spaceports, you know, one of the, one of the issues we cover is the rise of spaceports and, how there are dozens of proposed spaceports just in the, the U.S. Um, and uh, there's only a handful of, of real spaceports that are actually, you know, active on a regular basis. And right now that's digestible when you only have kind of six major spaceports. But if you someday get to a point where 
either you've got spaceports because there are commercial companies that are bringing products back down to earth, uh, mm -hmm. finished products to then, you know, sell in the marketplace, or whether you're bringing tourists or right. people who are flying into space and coming back down and you don't want to have to drive out to New Mexico just to go do this space trip. You want to do it from your home in, you know, Illinois or something like that. When we have that many spaceports going on, um, there's going to need to be a lot more rules of the road and just air traffic control. And, Absolutely. you know, I, I think that's one of those going to be mind blowing moments when people realize, oh, I can't just fly from D.C. to L.A. anymore straight across because I'm going to go across a couple of spaceports. You know, how right. do you make that work? That's crazy. How, what about? Yeah. So let's talk about the political environment. Do we does uh, does China start to buy Boeing again or is that uh, is that for a, you know, is that that's for a different day? That's or, do they just make, or do they just try to make it on their own and cut everybody out, you know, just just cut everybody else out of the pattern. That is the what six hundred billion dollar question, isn't it? Um, and that's scary for commercial aviation manufacturing. If we really are on the precipice of China and the U.S. bifurcating, and China going forward as its own ecosystem of aircraft manufacturing, which it could. Uh, it may take a while, mm -hmm. and they may not do it right for a very long time, but they'll get there eventually. I mean, there's an analogy, there's a very crude analogy about the Soviet Union and nuclear weapons, right? They didn't have them first, the U.S. did. Uh, but knowledge gets passed around eventually. It's very hard to control, and uh, it takes enough trial and error, and you too can have that ultimate capability. And China can very well get there where it has a commercial aviation system that's not just airlines and MRO shops to repair them, but it's got more importantly, the supply chains that can feed all of these COMAC built aircraft. It's possible, but you know, it's gonna take a long time. And in between then and now, there's the chance for the US, hopefully, to figure out a way to say, look, We'd like to partner with you economically, um, mm -hmm. but we're going to, you know, resist you politically. It's a dance. How do we do that? I don't know. I think it's, I think right now, honestly, my gut says it is a 40-60 shot. It's a 40% possibility that China goes its own way and has its own ecosystem. I think there's a 60% chance that we stay tied but even with a 60% chance, things are going to change. Uh, I don't think Boeing is ever going to sell the number of airliners into China that it was expecting to sell pre-pandemic. Right. I don't think it's, it's going to sell those again. Maybe Airbus does. I'm not even sure Airbus is going to do it. But Airbus is in a better position than Boeing politically um, because, you know, they're, they're a little more closely tied to well, China. So it's... It's a huge, huge question. Yeah, the ultimate thing though is that you know Airbus airplanes fly with you know, GE engines and Pratt and Whitney engines, and yeah, you know, yeah, they fly with Rolls Royce engines too. But a lot of that stuff is, it's 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 a unique political environment which I don't think anybody really anticipated. It is, and 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 ten and years I, ago, I think that you know it's fascinating. Here we are with a new presidential administration, um, the old one. And it was a very different administration. The old one provided 
um, some new authority and some new opportunity for the Biden administration to use as leverage. And, you know, one thing's guaranteed in, uh, in presidential transitions is the successor administration always enjoys the authorities that the last one provided for it. You know, whether it's Obama coming after Bush and all of the presidential mm -hmm. authority that came out of the Homeland Security response to 9-11, mm -hmm. or whether it's Biden responding to Trump and all of the expansive presidential authority he went after, particularly with China. You know, mm -hmm. we're going to see Biden take advantage of that leverage. And we're already seeing the Biden administration say, hey, not so fast. You know, we're not exactly just unwinding all of the Trump regulations. Right. So. It's going to take a little while for this to play out, and and I'm as interested to see where it goes as anybody. Yeah, yeah. The shame of it all is that everybody in the business aviation sector, you know, 20 years ago, everybody said, "Hey, look, China's the next frontier. We can sell some airplanes over there," um, and they did. But now all those airplanes are getting re going somewhere else. I mean, it, that whole market is not going to be. I mean, everybody thought it was going to be a infrastructure thing. Yeah, but the infrastructure would get built to support a growing Chinese economy. Right. Now, right. I think all the business jet manufacturers are like, yeah, okay, you know, this is, I think this is kind of lost, uh, lost money. It, uh, it'll, it'll never happen. Yeah. And, and, you know, the business jet community to me is kind of taking it at both ends. So China isn't growing, isn't going to probably turn out to be the marketplace that you just said everybody expected 20 years ago or hoped. On the other end, they're going to have real competition from new OEM supersonic BizJet providers yep. um, to the extent that these eVTOLs maybe eat into their marketplace. That could very well happen. Um, and then there's just, you know, don't forget about high-speed rail and uh, electric vehicles on the ground, Teslas and such. You know, if we make that whole experience better and easier, um, if the Biden administration's infrastructure push for high-speed rail comes to pass, there, there just could be less of a reason to get your own G6 or right. whatever. And, and you know, so I think the business aviation community is actually facing some of the potentially biggest change amongst the subsectors. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? You, I, I, you think feel like sharing, I think the sharing economy, I mean, it's uh, I think the sharing economy is, is really affecting it more than anything. When you think about um, fractional, fractional was booming and then it sort of plateaued and then net jets and you know net jets almost went out of business and for for the big influx from berkshire Cathay, you know berkshire uh, hathaway and you know big capital influx back in during the financial crisis yep flexjet got sold to directional aviation relatively cheaply now both of them are both of those businesses are, are starting to take off again Part 135 has taken off again. So you see all the 135 and all the operators taken off, but nobody's selling new airplanes. All the right. all the OEMs are sort of like, hey, we're kind of, you know, and what do they had to do? They all had to go bigger, farther, you know, longer yep. because that's where the money's made. Exactly. But the, Large but cabins. The people, but the people who really need the lift are these people that, you know, are sort of the, the small yeah, they, they don't want a G6 or G650. Right. G600, G650. They want to, they need a CJ. But, yeah, but, but Cessna doesn't make a lot of money selling CJs and, and, and Embraer doesn't make a lot of money selling Embraer. So it's a, it's a chicken or egg thing. That's, that's a business model that's got to be, you know, figured out.
Um, I, you know, one company that I watch to, to see sort of how that goes is uh, Honda Jet. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think if overnight you see their sales take off uh, in, in kind of a sustainable way, then you know that uh, uh, more people on the lower end, the smaller cabin, you know, it's here to say, stay, the private aviation experience, BizJet experience could very well be here to stay. But if, if that doesn't happen, as you just said, you can't just keep looking to large cabin as the, it can't be the only growth driver for the business aviation community, spe specifically not for the manufacturers. Right. Um, it's, it's diminishing returns. I mean, I, I look at like, you know, what's, uh, you know, you know you know, Daher, you know, Daher with the, and the TBM, you know, 940 or 930. Yeah, you're talking about four or five million dollar airplane. Money's cheap. Tax rates are going to go up. So it's a bigger tax write off. Yep. So I'm thinking, hey, look, oh, maybe I'll go find a, if I'm a 10, 20, 30 million dollar company that needs that lift, maybe I'll go buy a couple of those. Maybe, you know, if, if you know, maybe these, the people that are making that class of airplanes should really be pumping it for this is the ultimate solution for you know, your midsize, your midsize market, the plus, right. yeah, you know, the PC-12, what a phenomenal airplane. Right. You know, proven again. Proven, proven again. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't use that much gas. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of great, um, but it's a great value. And think about 5 million bucks for $5 million. And it's a, yeah, you can finance it cheap and you can run them from Chicago to anywhere mm -hmm. and it's reliable and you got lift. So I, I think the whole industry is going to have to morph itself a little bit and, you know, you you mentioned um, one other issue I was watching. Um, you mentioned politics, but the taxes in particular, and that got me thinking. Um, I really do kind of think we're at an inflection point on a lot of the macroeconomic factors that are going to hit this industry in, in probably new ways um, because, you know, you never step into the same river twice. Um, mm -hmm. Taxes are going to go up, and we've seen taxes go up again, you know, be go up before, but we've never seen taxes go up um, inflation go up, maybe oil prices go up to the degree that we're saying when demographics are going down, um, retirements are happening, um, you know, changes in demographics around the world. I think there's a lot of confluences that the aerospace and defense industry is seeing on a macroeconomic level, probably this next coming 10 years that are going to hit some of these subsectors sub in new ways like BizAv. What happens when taxes go up and oil prices go up? It's like, is that going to help or hurt? Are people going to rush to buy things to get it done? Or are they just going to hold off and say, I can't afford to sustain that asset? Yeah, that's the $64,000. Yeah, that's a that's a $64,000 question right there. It's if oil goes back to a hundred bucks, you know, you know, God help us all, quite frankly. Right. I mean, yeah, everybody thinks it's going to be green, but, you know, look, we're, we're not, you know, we're not anywhere, you know, we're not anywhere near seeing all electric vehicles on the road. Um, and even if we were, we got to figure out how to pay for the roads because you're not getting any money from gas taxes. So that's a whole different thing. Um, the thing that I think is really, what's really bothered me is the class structure on business aviation. Um, business aviation supports $200 billion of economy. Um, you think about the you know, Cessnas, the Gulf Streams, the Embraers, the manufacturers, the FBOs, you know, the airports. Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a free, it's really, it's a free lunch because, you know, but, but the, yeah, and I think the Obama administration was really bad. You know, the fat cats flying their private jets. Well, I'm like, wait, wait a minute. The fat cats flying their private jets are supporting $200 billion worth of jobs, including right. 30,000 of them in 
Savannah, Georgia, and a whole boatload of them, Wichita. So let's not, let's, yeah, let's, that, that let's, shotgun shot took out a lot of collateral let, uh, damage. Use, I was like, hey, why don't we tone down the rhetoric a little bit? It's sort of like what's happening in green energy right now. It's all of a sudden anybody who's a fracker or a pipeline or whatever is a bad person. Like, well, you know, you think about the entire economy for the last five years grew off of becoming energy independent mm-hmm. as a nation. Yep. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe we don't need to be, you know, maybe the political rhetoric needs to die. Maybe we don't need to be bashing everybody. I agree. And that, and that takes you all the way back to China, for instance. You know, I, I don't think the rest of the country truly appreciates that that China was the growth market for commercial aviation manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And commercial aviation manufacturing was the leading exporting industry for the United States for a good long time. The Aerospace Industries Association has been tracking the the trade balance um, and the net positives that commercial aviation was responsible for. Mm -hmm. Defense sales help, but they are not as big and they are not as reliable as commercial aviation manufacturing was. And selling Mm -hmm. these MAXs and 787s around the world was very important to U.S. industry and U.S. manufacturing. And if China is lost as a market, whether on purpose politically or by accident politically, um, that's really going to hit home in many, many small communities. You know, you're talking all the way out to Wichita and uh, Oklahoma and supply chain suppliers in Texas. You know, if you're just supplying to the U.S. market and maybe Europe, you're going to need 30, 40, 50 percent fewer of them. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's one thing, too, is I learned competition makes for better competitors. Um, China's a competitor. I mean, you know, you know, China is now a competitor to the United right. States economically, and they will be it forevermore. Um, the answer to industry is, hey, look, you know, stifle the rhetoric and compete. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just be better. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge to the administration now is to, hey, you know, look, you can talk privately to the Chinese and voice your concerns, but let's get it out of the newspaper with, you know, and, and you, you know, China, you do the same, you know, let's just, you know, let's get it out. You know, let's get the rhetoric out of the public. Let's start, stop talking about boycotting Olympics and human rights. And, you know, yes, those are important subjects, but those dialogues can be had in less of a public forum, I think, right. where, which creates less animosity between the two countries. Let um, the diplomats do their thing. Exactly. You know, Gorbachev said it very well. Yes. And I, sometimes I think he's right. He says, the United States needs an enemy, you know, and I'm like, well, maybe we, yeah, he, I think in a lot of ways he was right. Our, our self-righteousness becomes very prevalent. Maybe, and it's self-consuming. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I will say one other thing though, for industry across every subsector, whether it's BizAv, commercial aviation, defense, space, whatever, there is a key thing they have to do as well, and that is invest. If we are going to compete with China, our companies have to take more of their own money and put it into developing newer and better products and newer and better services more than they are now. I know some spend more money than others, um, and there's a lot of complaint that the government R&D has has uh, subsided over the decades. And that's absolutely true. But our business community is actually very strong 
as a whole. And these companies need to do a better job of their own independent research and development and applying it forward and not just protecting their own franchises, but coming up with new products, right? In aviation, it's always new products. It's the new BizJet. It's the new airliner. It's the new rocket. It's the new spacecraft, you know, that excites people that brings the market in and grows the market. And uh, I would just put out there a call basically for our own industry to get going. You know, let's let the diplomats do their thing, but you business people do your thing and invest more. Right. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Look, there's so much investment capital awash in the world right now. Um, You just look at all the SPACs that are going out there and people saying, hey, look, yeah, we're, we're creating this, you know, this investment vehicle, you know, send us your money and we'll invest it wisely. Right. Uh, private equity is going crazy right now. Money is cheap. Um, it can be borrowed and it can be used to invest. And, you know, what does that look like? Does that, you know, is that a you know, new middle market aircraft from Boeing, which is 30% more fuel efficient? I, I, look, I think Airbus did it well. Bombardier did great. Uh, I, I look at the AT20. And I think the AT20 could literally be a game changer. I mean, it totally it was for Bombardier. It, it totally, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, all right, so Bombardier, you got a half right. You developed a great airplane. <laughs> you went bankrupt in the process. Right. Um, Which is unfortunately a very common story in this yeah, industry. It, it, no, it's like, it's like real estate development. It's like real estate development. It's like, you know, it's, uh, it's always the third real estate developer on the, in the community that, that makes all the money, right, after the first right. deal went bankrupt. Right. But, but that, that airplane could be a game changer from uh, – a lot of ways. It, yeah. Interesting to see how how they do it. Uh, yeah, you know the, the the A220. I do agree is a, is an excellent example of innovation and in how the industry can help take a step forward. Um, if you kind of take Bombardier's own problems out of it yeah. for a moment, you know, it's let's let's be real. Developing a new aircraft, 10, 15, 20 billion dollars. Uh, if it's a commercial aircraft, um, you know, 10 billion, if it's a business jet or something like that. Um, but it's billions of dollars one way or another. Mm-hmm. And and nobody should take that for granted. Um, it's just to me, it's a narrative that needs to be presented to shareholders as a uh, uh, an, a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. So like, if you want to be in the aerospace business, you're going to have to invest this money, put down the billions of dollars. You got to manage it correctly. Don't don't get me wrong. Um, don't let it bankrupt you or almost bankrupt you like Bombardier and others, but, yep. but you're going to have to put the money forward. Yeah. It's a wide moat. I mean, it's, it, it creates it, the, the barriers to entry are very high, you know, but if, but if you invest in it, you know, the bottom line is you've got, you know, a Boeing Airbus oligopoly, you got Embraer kind of out there right. now, and, and that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I've seen some interesting scenarios. Um, yeah. We haven't even talked about MNA. <laughs> You know, M&A in this industry is, uh, it's mind boggling right now. I was talking to a couple of advisors um, at some DC area firms, and they were talking about how in their own 30, 35 year career, they've never seen so many buyers out there, and they've never seen so many sellers. And what they mean by sellers is everybody's a seller. Like right now, there's the potential for just kind of name your price. Mm-hmm. Um, even companies that you think are doing well, you know, if a big enough private equity buyer comes in and offers mm-hmm. them enough money, 
who isn't going to sell? Just right. about everybody will sell right now, and there are enough people out there with money to buy. It's just incredible. Well, it, it, that's the yeah, that's what happens when the, the the Fed keeps printing and interest rates are. You know, they say hey, it's very dovish. Um, you know, gotta go make some money somewhere. But yeah, no, look, I mean, I I, I seriously thought, you know, when we were at the depths of COVID, and Boeing stock was down at about eighty bucks, I literally thought Carlisle or Blackstone or BlackRock or one of the bigger, I literally thought that they could they were going to get taken over. And Completely agree. I am a little surprised that an activist investor mm-hmm. did not step into Boeing at that and time just, and just say we're going to take it. We're going to we're going to buy it. We're going to take it private. We'll see yep. you guys in a couple of years. And you think about like what shareholder, quite frankly, back when it was eighty nine bucks, what shareholder wouldn't have taken a hundred for the whole company? You know, now it's up to two fifty or something like that. But who knew back then that it would recover? And, yeah. and, and and maybe, I don't know, maybe overvalued now, but yeah, I, I wonder what's going to happen to Rolls-Royce. Yeah, you think about Rolls-Royce. On the, uh... <laughs> you know, I did, Rolls-Royce, I will say that Rolls-Royce to me isn't so much of a mystery. I just simply do not believe the British government is going to let that asset go yeah. away. I, I do not think it's possible. Um, I think they were willing to do things for other parts of the aerospace supply chain like GKN. Uh, with Melrose, mm-hmm. that deal that happened, Cobham getting yeah. taken over by private equity. It, as long as the supply isn't disrupted, I think the government and the jobs weren't slashed overnight. Yeah. I don't think they were, you know, they weren't happy about those companies being sort of debritified, but it happened. Uh, Rolls Royce is an entirely different scenario. If they lose Rolls Royce, the the basically the whole British effort to be in aerospace entity uh, to be meaningful in the industry anymore is gone. And so I, I, they'll do what it takes. I mean, that one to me is too big to fail on the British end. So ultimately, will they partner with somebody like Raytheon Technologies? I could see a partnership, particularly mm-hmm. one that's helped to be brokered by the governments, US and, and UK. Um, but I don't think anybody's going to take over Rolls Royce. I would, I would just be shocked. Now, maybe we'll come back in a couple of years and <laughs> You put me on the spot and say, Bruno, you didn't see that acquisition coming, but I will be surprised. Yeah, no, well, that's, you know, I, I sort of agree with the same, I, I agree with the same way, you know, now, you know, the UK wants to get, you know, Tempest aircraft and they're not going to go buy Pratt Whitney or GE for their own homegrown. No. Um, you know, they can invest in some, you know, they can, they can, you know, the, whatever Boeing creates or whatever Airbus creates is a new platform of airplane the British government could come in and act as a backstop to any investment. So I, I tend to agree with you. Maybe I see another joint venture, you know, Pratt, uh, you know, Raytheon, right. Rolls-Royce JV, much like IAE was, and they, they come back to that. So yeah, we'll have to see what, uh, what happens. So it's uh, a lot of balls in the air in the industry. It's, it's a lot of fun right now. To, it to is. See how it all plays out. Absolutely. I agree. Are you bullish? Are you bullish or are you bullish, bearish, or do you think uh, some candles need to be lit under some uh, under the butts of some CEOs? I am. Uh, I do think some candles need to be lit for sure. I talked about investment there. I, you know, I think there's uh, a lot more work um, that I expect out of industry CEOs on investment. I expect more work out of them out of workforce development, um, not just talent recruitment, but talent development. Um, I, 
I think it's folly to think that you can count on the government to come in every 10 to 20 years and bail out this industry. Um, uh, maybe, maybe I'm becoming too much of a stick in the mud, but I think if that happens once more in living memory, people are going to say, look, you know, stop subsidizing that industry. It's like a horse and buggies, mm -hmm. you know, you know, it's just like, let the marketplace take care of it. And uh, we've all moved on to other industries. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there, there's going to be a need to find a sustainable way to develop and recruit people. I think there needs to be a sustainable way to build new products. Um, but I, I'm overall a pragmatist. You know, I think the glass is too big, not half full, not, mm -hmm. not, not half empty. But I, I would say I'm a little bit of a bullish pragmatist. I mean, you know, between, um, between growing middle-class uh, populations around the world, I think with the rise of commercial space, I think with business aviation and private aviation proving some resiliency through the pandemic, uh, I, and all of this is going to be need need to be repaired. So there's a future for MRO one way or another. Yep. You know, I, there's growth, there's opportunity. It may be painful change, and some people may not survive that change. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, the the vet, you know, the trajectory is still up. I yeah, think no, we're I, still I, going up. I agree with you. Everybody talks about. It. I know, uh, you know, AAR was doing a great job with workforce development. John Holmes, he, you know, he was doing, you know, and, and still is. They understand that good technicians are going to be hard to find, and they're investing in kids early. Every company that is involved in this area needs to be. It's it's you can't invest in them when they're twenty. It's when they're ten, you know, and you. you, you you start investing when you figure out creative ways. I don't, I don't care how you do it, but get them yep. interested in education and, and developing their brains and, and getting them excited about space and satellites and you know, connectivity. Yeah. And, and, and I, I'm bullish as well. I don't think that, you know, I know uh, some people say the airlines are never going to come back because of zoom. I'm like, ah, I don't, I'm not, uh, no, if, you know, no. It, yeah. Uh, they'll come back. They will come back. They may not have the same business model. Uh, maybe the business traveler doesn't come back like like he or she used to. Um, but you know, you can still have a market with leisure travel. Um, mm -hmm. And and they were population wise the vast majority of people who got on aircraft. Yeah. So um, change your business model. Maybe that'll be painful, probably, but it can happen. You can do it. Yep. So exciting, exciting times. So why don't we do why don't we do this? Let's uh, let's end it here and uh, come back. We'll, we'll get you back on in a couple of weeks. We'll just talk about the state of the industry and where we are in a, in a couple of weeks. I love it. I, it was a real honor being here. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming. Uh, thank you for coming on. I love uh, I love reading your your articles, your editorials. Uh, thank always, you. They're always spot on. So uh, Michael Bruno is the uh, the business editor for Aviation Week. Um, Get a, get a subscription, read his stuff. It's fantastic. And thank you for coming on. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig at NorthStarESG.com, or check us out at www.NorthStarESG.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pippen.